Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Happy May and welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk radio show. Here's a quick announcement. Our May heart-centered and passion-driven inspirations for better living digital magazine designed to help moms build a better future for themselves, their families, and loved ones will be live this weekend at inspirationsforbetterliving.com. May's theme is Celebrating Mother's Day, Living a Legacy of Love. The magazine offers inspirational stories from our dedicated team of experts to help you navigate your current situation with confidence in your motherhood journey as the COO, if not the CEO, of your family. So please go to inspirationsforbetterliving.com and treat yourself to some engaging, entertaining, and enlightening stories. You deserve it. As for our radio show this morning, my guest for today is Christian Ragosin. Christian is a professional wealth management consultant with over 30 years of experience in the fluency of the monetary system and finances. With an investment portfolio of over $150 million in clients' assets at Merrill Lynch and Raymond James, she helps her clients navigate markets and achieve financial goals. Christian is also a certified digital currency professional. She has a master's degree from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. She holds certificates in FinTech from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Money and Society from the University of Cumbria, London. Kristen also loves the adventure of life and has traveled worldwide enjoying its beauty from the culturally diversity of people to wonders of the world. Her many journeys include climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, hiking through the Sahara Desert, and studying at a spiritual school in southern India's foothills. After the 2008 market crash, Kristen set out to unravel and solve some of humanity's most crucial belief system about the monetary system. She successfully unlocked new fundamental truths about money and how we should view it. Kristen's number one Amazon best-selling book, The End of Scarcity, The Dawn of the New Abundant World, helps people unlock a mindset of scarcity to abundance. Kristen is also one of our featured expert contributors to our April Inspiration for a Better Living magazine. Please go to inspirationsforbetterliving.com to read her inspiring and empowering story, a new view with a different kind of bottom line, in our Mama's Family Piggy Bank section. As for our kitchen table conversation this morning, Kristen and I will be talking about her remarkable life's journey and how we can stop chasing money and stop living for money without having to give anything up from her book, The End of Scarcity. Happy Wednesday, Kristen. Welcome to From My Mom's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Oh, thank you so much, Johnny. It's so nice to be here. I'm doing really well. Thanks. How about you? Doing well. I'm very excited to talk to you. Hey, we're talking about money, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's always a topic that gets attention. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It is a pleasure to have you with me. The End of Scarcity, The Dawn of the New Abundant World is a fascinating read. It is a beautifully written book. Love the conversation approach. Very insightful, engaging, and a definite page turner. 
the information shared is extremely inspiring for the heart, mind, body, and spirit. So congratulations on this release. Thank you so much. You know, it was um, a result of probably 10 years' worth of research and um, some real, you know, revelations in my own self that I was so um, driven and enthused to put it into a book form for other Mm -hmm. people to have this knowledge. Wonderful. Well, it certainly is a page turner, the approach of the conversation, because that's what it's all about, because you're on that journey and you're sharing information. It's not necessarily just you. It's the collectiveness of the whole situation that makes a big difference. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think um, even just the busyness and all the different strains that that we that we feel that we're conscious of, mm-hmm. that we're unconscious of, you know, money itself doesn't get a lot of attention in the sense of pondering what it is or right. or you know, at, why do we use this form of money? We're all pretty busy trying to earn it, figuring out how right. we're going to spend it, maybe invest it, and yet mm-hmm. um, money itself, the tool of money is the most powerful thing in our society um, Mm -hmm. on a pragmatic standpoint. I mean, we could say love is, but on a day-to-day basis and how decisions are being made, money is a very powerful determiner in terms of even our mental health. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, when we step back and actually take a moment and start having a conversation about money itself, this is the type of material that I think should be in the first grade. It should be early on um, so that people really have a foundation and can Mm. live a different life. Right, right. So true. Let us get to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Oh, I love it. Oh, gosh. Well, I'll tell you, I was always a very curious, sort of optimistic child, you know, um, loved life right away, loved people and, and just, you know, the sort of sense of magical possibilities or mm-hmm. what was going to be around the next corner. And um, I had very sort of, um, I had a father who was interested in teaching his children, um, parents who really encouraged us. And my father, you know, strangely enough, thought it would be a wonderful idea for my sister and I to earn our allowance explaining (laughs) how the markets worked and how interest rates worked, you know. And back then, of course, my allowance was a dollar a week, but Mm -hmm. I certainly was not going to get my dollar unless. I answered the questions correctly. Mm-hmm. And I was still given another chance to go back and, you know, learn the principles and ask him about it. So early on, he wanted to get his children to have the real basics of how to make it through life or live life. And he would even ask us when we came home from school what we learned every day mm-hmm. and then would fill in the gaps if there were things that were really practical that were missing. So, um, that was even five, six, seven, and um, you know, I I loved all those kinds of um, putting putting this into action. Um, so I would go and talk to neighbors and see if I could walk dogs and babysit and earn money. Um, and then, to my chagrin, I would get in trouble if it was sitting in the box <laughs> and not in the bank earning money. Which mm-hmm. um, So I, I had a very early training and sort of consciousness about right. how we, our ability to contribute, our ability to find a way that we could serve others, we could help influence the destiny of our lives. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. 
you know, I really watched my parents model that in many ways. Um, they weren't afraid of working or getting dirty or whatever life required of them at the moment and still had lots of dignity and beauty and all different kinds of things. Um, so I felt really empowered as a little child that everybody, if they were sort of willing to put in some elbow grease and tune into what they love to do, um, the, the doors could open in life. Very, very interesting. Yeah. In hearing that, it reminds me of how I grew up because my mom was the CEO of the whole family. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly enough, she assigned things for my sister and I to do, and we get paid for it. Like a majority wow. of the stuff is more like clean after us <laughs> and getting the house ready for guest visits and so forth. And then when I got older, I remember it was funny because when I was at 11 years old, I got my bicycle and then at 15, I got my motorcycle, right? So I did very well in wow. ninth grade. So, and I got a motorcycle, but I had enough gas money for five days a week to go back and forth to school. On the weekends, <laughs> I have to wow. uh, taxi my mom everywhere and my sister back and forth to work. That's how I get my weekend. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think this is great, though. You know, you, you sort of look at the difference. I mean, um, in one way, the, the kids today sort of have um, things that I think we didn't have when we were growing up. There's a little bit mm -hmm. more room for feelings and even right. beginning to understand what they want to do. But also, we were really pushed to have some sense of, you know, self-responsibility and like, oh, wait a right. minute, I could make the right decision or I could make a mistake. Right. And, um, you know, although my mother was afraid, I was never allowed to, like, touch the lawnmower. That fell on my sister. <laughs> you know, I you know, I was, uh, they, I certainly was spared from using machinery because they always thought mm -hmm. I would get hurt. But then mm -hmm. I had to really catch up in my 20s and, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, but it's, it is, it's, it's amazing, um, you know, sort of some of the decisions already that seem like they're very adult-like uh, that should start probably a lot earlier, um, right, certainly around right. money and value and, and contributing to the household to really see, gosh, what the parents do um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, this tremendous balance of what's created to, to provide some sense of stability for the home. Definitely. We take this for granted. The home is the first classroom that we're all enrolled oh, in. I love about. that. Yeah. And so that's where values are taught. And simple social, soft skills, whatever you want to call it, that's where you develop or starts to find out the gifts and talents that you're born with. Wow. Wow. It's really true. You know, my father was in advertising um, on Madison Avenue. So we, we grew up in Connecticut and he would they my mother would drive him to the train station and he would and at that point, um, you know, he would just go from Grand Central Station, I think his building was even his office mm -hmm. was in the same building. And, you know, it was a different time. It was a little bit more stylish in many ways, but um, you know, and he would they my parents would entertain clients. Mm -hmm. So um, clients would be invited to our home. My mother would make something beautiful. 
and we would be um, required to come downstairs and greet the clients, and my father would teach us how to shake a hand, to mm-hmm. look into, you know, have direct eye contact, right. and really properly greet the clients, and and have conversation. So we we had to stay for at least 15 minutes or, (laughs) you know, or more, maybe a half an hour to make sure that we were getting trained ready to ask questions about the clients and engage. So, you know, it really, it's, it's, um, it's, it is your, it's your most important early training. Yes. Yes. The concept of making the client in this case, uh, strategically, it's all good intention now. Don't get me wrong because it's the idea of that family comes first from the standpoint of the unity. And believe it or not, and I'm glad you brought this up because you are in the corporate world and I used to be in the corporate world in the sense that harmony at home can always be brought to work, but you can't mm-hmm. bring harmony at work home. It doesn't work. Wow. Wow. So You true. can bring organizational wow. stuff from work to help facilitate <laughs> Uh, home chores and stuff like that, but it doesn't work the other way around. Because just imagine when you are happy at home and you go to work, you all smiles. And it's like, what happened to this guy? <laughs> it's talking lightning or something. <laughs> but that's the difference. And so interestingly enough, that's something that corporate America sometimes forget in the sense that when we claim supposedly we are corporate family, of course, at one time that's a big thing, and now it is too in a way, but depending on how one wants to look at it. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so were there monetary experiences from your childhood that still contribute to your thinking process today? Yeah, you know, definitely. I think um, since I watched how hard my parents worked, you know, Mm -hmm. um, they would save money. And, you know, even early on, my parents, uh, you know, went to see if they could buy a rental property. You know, I really witnessed this and, and my parents going over to scrub the house themselves or paint it themselves. And and um, so we, we got to witness this sort of self-determination and, and self-responsibility um, and how that extra uh, effort in certain ways could provide um, new opportunities that didn't existed. And, mm-hmm. and even how my father used to say, um, you know, be careful still where, you know, you say yes to lots of small things. They add up, you know, quite quickly. And all of yes. a sudden, you know, you're sort of living beyond your means without you know it. But I, th- I think the most impactful thing that my father said to me when I was little, which has never left me, and I really encourage um, younger people when I talk to them about investing, he would ask me, you know, when you're out on your own, what what is the first bill you're going to pay? And I would say, um, my mortgage, you know, or my rent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he would say, no. And I would say, gosh, you know, I, I, I truly could not imagine <laughs> what it would be. And he would say, yourself. You would right. pay yourself first. You would always have a savings goal. And you'll make sure that when you get your paycheck, the first bill that's paid is putting money away in savings. And, you know, it seemed like such a revelation to me. And I never forgot it. And even it was surprising to me that after college that I ended up going into the professional financial advisor program at Merrill Lynch in Boston. Mm-hmm. You know, it should have been no surprise, but it was. And um, so it, it just became very um, easy to know, of course, that you'd look at all the different avenues. And 
you know, it, it even would come down to that if it was a small amount of money that was being put away, that was more important that the action was being taken every month than the mm-hmm. amount of money. And then what really also surprised me is that after maybe the first or the second paycheck, I did not even notice at all anymore that, you know, that the money was not there to spend, that it was being Mm -hmm. put away and life completely just molded around it. And that was another very important life lesson where I saw, wow, things that might seem difficult or not fun or um, maybe that I couldn't do that. In fact, we, we do adapt and that we adapt very, very quickly. Um, and that I think is a strong teaching that I got at home as well, which was when it seems hard, the most important thing is to try and then believe and or believe in yourself and try and then to really see, um, you know, how amazing we are as humans, each and every one, mm-hmm. and that we can do quite more then we think it's it's just maybe taking a breath and getting a little bit more energy before we try and how quickly it can change. Fascinating. That's really true. You pursued a career in money management. What was the greatest lesson in the first five years as a wealth management expert? I would even say I I, I pursued it somewhat reluctantly at the very beginning. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I had... Um, I had gone to school and I had, I had studied political science, which I thought was fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I loved to study so much that I had finished early and I went, I did a second degree in anthropology and still had finished school, I think, a semester early. And without really recognizing it, I was studying distribution of resources, mm-hmm. power, um, you know, all really what economics is really about. And then having this sort of, you know, family training, this father-daughter thing, we even, Mm -hmm. my dad would buy stocks with us when we grew older to help us, (laughs) you know, get comfortable with it and guarantee our losses, which I thought, wow, shouldn't he be guaranteeing our gains? You know, know, not not realizing what this incredible deal he was giving us. (laughs) So, you know, being a regular, you know, 17 or 18-year-old or then 22-year-old, not really fully appreciating this this grounding that I had been given, um, mm-hmm. I set off to Boston, and I thought, gosh, I've been too goal-oriented. I'm going to do something different. It would be great for me to waitress for a while um, so that I can really be in tune with what I want. Well, that just didn't last very long. Um, you know, I think I ended up getting three or four jobs and mm-hmm. felt really uncomfortable that I wasn't on some type of career path. And I was always interested in empowerment for people and people really coming home to their talents, getting the sense of what their unique, divinely given gift was, um, which I believed then and still firmly believe every person who's here is born with a beautiful, unique talent that the world is looking for each person to, to, to contribute of themselves. And that it also brings great joy because it's igniting from the person and the world. Um, so I figured, you know, gosh, I, I really always loved seeing people empowered and happy and, in, you know, really um, feeling like they're alive in their own sense of mastery. So I thought maybe I'd become a lawyer. I would, you know, fight for civil rights. I don't know. You know, this was... <laughs> you know, in the late 80s and early 90s, and that's Mm -hmm. really sort of what I thought. And then when I saw how uncomfortable I was, um, not really having a path, 
my competitive streak started to surface and I decided it was time to get a job and I started interviewing and then I got all these interviews and I was more competitive to get the people to say yes than to really be aware of, did I want, was this really true work for me? Yeah. You know, so I ended up getting the job at Merrill Lynch and at that time it was still a different world. There were not many women there by any, by mm-hmm. any means in 92 mm-hmm. and I looked very young for my age. So, um, well, good you know, for you. It, it made it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was nice, except when I was trying to build a practice, it would scare potential, you know, potential <laughs> prospects. I'd get to the door and they would think, who is this, you know, teenager? And, mm-hmm. um, or if I take them to lunch and they wanted a glass of wine, I'd get carded in front of them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was certainly a <laughs> handicap, but it was, yeah, my mother would always say it would pay off later. And, um, <laughs> You know, so when I got there, I thought, gosh, you know, this is just not for me. I just, I remember in the interview, they said, what makes you think that you could do this? Mm-hmm. And that just, I thought, well, what makes you think I couldn't, you know? And right. um, so I was determined to get the job. And I wasn't sure. I, I shook the manager's hand and I thought, this is ridiculous. I'll certainly be quitting in two weeks. Um, I don't think this is expansive enough and where I can help people enough. Um, so I studied for the tests. I passed all my licenses. And when I went to go meet my first prospective client, it all changed. I sat at their kitchen table with them, and they brought out their statements, talked about their hopes and their dreams, and I could feel the pain they had around money. And mm-hmm. it was <laughs> so moving to me. And, um, you know, all the different mixed emotions that I didn't expect, and I was instantly hooked. I thought, my goodness, I could help empower them. I could help show them how um, their money that they've earned could help support them to further their dreams. And um, and so it began. And I ended up building a business. I built a beautiful business. Um, I started training other financial advisors at Merrill Lynch. I loved it. I, I really, really loved it for many, many years. Um, and, uh, and you know, I, I just had a sort of a big change in 2008 where I was lucky enough to see the financial crisis coming mm-hmm. ahead of time and get my client base pretty much out of the market for everyone who could get out, who didn't need to 100% stay invested for right. income needs. And, um, but it really took me, it, 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 I took a great pause because at that point I saw that I was missing something in my worldview. The destruction was so great during 2008, um, that, that I, it was a watershed moment in my life. Right. When did spirituality come into your life and how did that refresh your view about the monetary system? Because I know based on what you just mentioned, you were, sort of soul-searching in a way, right? And you're discovering mm-hmm. yourself and so forth. When did that spirituality really kick in to whereby that's a, this beautiful balance now that, whoa, I'm yeah. finding oh, that enlightenment within. <laughs> yes. Really, you know, and I would say um, as early as I can remember, you know, mm-hmm. as early as I can remember. And I would really always feel the presence of God. So this was not a mm-hmm. foreign thing to me or, mm-hmm. you know, a distant thing. And um, if, if, you know, if, if my parents couldn't ask, answer questions, then I would just sort of ask um, and, and really feel as though I was having a conversation and really hearing 
the beautiful presence of the divine or God sharing mm-hmm. some, you know, warm, wonderful insight. Um, especially as a little child, I would see these happy people come over for dinner parties or friends, and they would be smiling, and I could feel their sadness. You know, I could feel yeah. the other different types of conflicting emotions. And this also would be confusing to me early on. And um, and I would just really get the sense that they didn't know how much they were wanted here and how much they were loved. And, um, of course, that was as a five-year-old. So I didn't have the appreciation for how easily this happens to humans as as, as they grow, you know, and yeah, um, yeah. and I I didn't quite get to see how intertwined that was with money, in until later on in the sense of, um, uh, you know, this whole sense of scarcity can take us away from right. the beauty of who we are, you know, and that abundance that that we're really born with. You know, and and that this presence that that we cannot really be disconnected from our divinity and from the whole greater spirituality that envelops our lives, that this also is part of the wealth that we're born with, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that this is inseparable because we are amazing beings with inspiration pumping through us all the time. We just can be disconnected or tired or, you know, it can be sort of seemingly turned off for a while. But, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. so it it shaped my whole life path, um, and it certainly shaped um, building my practice as a financial advisor because I was really honored by every person who came to work with me, you know, and, and when I sat with them as clients, I really listened to see who these people were. And um, I always found something so beautiful about each client that I worked with or each prospect that I met with. And um, I learned, you know, I I have truly learned so much also from all of my clients. So that's, and and that's something my father had said to me when I was a little girl too. He (laughs) would say, true sophistication is being able to learn something from everyone you meet and talk to be able to have a real conversation with every person you meet. That's beautiful. I mean, sounds like he's a very wise person and enlightened person himself. The good news is sharing that with you. And from what I gather here, the spirituality side of the equation allows you to look beyond the numbers. Ah, uh, yes, definitely. And and really to even see, you know, what is the point of the numbers? Mm-hmm. And I think this goes far beyond the money business. This is the truth for all of us, mm-hmm. you know, um, when because we are living with numbers all the time. And numbers are wonderful. Right. Right. <laughs> numbers are sort of a beautiful universal language. Yes. Um, but, you know, numbers were created to help us. And yet easily we're enslaved by numbers over and over. And sometimes I would pause and say, gosh, you know, do I have an absolutely silly job where my goal is just to make numbers on a sheet of paper get bigger? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if we're living that way, yes, we're wasting our potential. But if we're actually looking at what the numbers represent, which is the stored wealth, the value mm-hmm. that we've contributed to one another, and how that that wealth of contributing to one another can be used to greater serve our lives, our families, our extended networks, and the world itself, well, then, you know, then we're living on purpose. And then we're living a life that's quite meaningful. Right. That's beautifully put. 
So how do you define scarcity as it relates to the definition of abundance? Yeah, it's such a great question. You know, it's so interesting. Since the book came out late last fall, people would even ask me, some people would say, what is scarcity? And I would think to myself, gosh, I would think that would sort of be just a known concept. And then I would think, what a, what a fascinating question. Um, because really, scarcity, in its most simple terms, can be not enough money. Um, mm-hmm. But it really is the sense of lack that can often pervade our lives, our days. And we can even oscillate from moment to moment where lack is pervading and then suddenly we're in this, you know, connected abundance state. I see it in my own self when I watch my energy oscillate and my point of view or my whole perspective of what I think is possible. So scarcity in its most simple terms, which many people are living with today, is sort of living for the money or chasing that whole sense of not enoughness. Mm-hmm. and trying to make ends meet. It often really can come in the lack of time and the lack of ability to really pay attention to one another. And where I, you know, all I've been sharing, certainly my childhood was quite abundant in how I had the attention of my mother and my father. You know, my mother was also quite an influence and, and an amazing woman herself. Um, but it is sort of the only resource that we all have is our attention. And mm-hmm. it's, it's probably what children want the most is to, to have the attention of those around them, you know, and, um, and, and really to be heard. And yet this is what we all want. Um, you know, even if, if there's a problem or a job is done incorrectly or someone is losing money, what I've, I've also found what people want the most is is to 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 have that connection mm-hmm. and where we're paying attention to one another it's also our most valuable resource so we have to be careful where we're putting it <laughs> but it's 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 an investment that we make every moment mm-hmm. and um so when life is abundant we are in the flow of where we are putting our attention where it matters most for who we are so that it's it's in alignment with the talents and the gifts that we've been born with and and connected to to what we feel engaged with and that we are because we're impacting one another all the time that if we have the opportunity to more consciously impact one another we do that with the with our attention and and the abundance absolutely flows very interesting is that why you write the end of scarcity well, you know, the end of scarcity really came about um, when I saw something was systematically wrong in the financial mm-hmm. system, which created 2008, which actually is, is, is very um, echoing timing. So um, these banking crises that we see, which were, you know, we've, we've seen recently, we could, it could get much worse. You know, and they're always operating underneath. Um, so the system that we've created, when when I had this stunning revelation, when I did um, nine months worth of research trying to find the root cause of 2008, and I discovered it was in the way that the dollar was actually created. And I wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought it was political or economic policy, possibly social issues where you get this mm-hmm. sort of pernicious sense of scarcity. But no, in fact, it's none of that. 
And those are all symptoms of the problem. And even the problems that we see in families where families need so much more um, appreciation for for just what all of your work is about, where mm-hmm. um, as people can become more resourced and get more ideas, nothing has more leverage than investing in our homes and our, our communities. So I saw that... Um, the system itself was actually misdesigned, and I, again, mm-hmm. I would have never thought this because I had such a positive upbringing around money and markets. And it, then it took me on, oh gosh, maybe um, I, you know, se- seven years of research to find the solution. But when I saw the monetary history, on one level, it was a plus because I saw every other people before us had been through the same type of crisis. Um, so for almost five or 6,000 years, people have been um, having all this sort of instability in society because the money has changed over and over and over. And there were certain periods of time where what a society used as money was, was designed correctly and society flourished. There were almost golden age periods during that time. And then when the money was produced or designed in such a way that it created an illusion of scarcity or Mm -hmm. truly the sense of scarcity, people struggled and families broke down and people broke down between races and sexes and all these kinds of hurts between um, cultural lines. And then, you know, fracturing with politics or you'd even get revolutions that seemed to produce something better, but in fact produced something worse because from the greater instability, sort of the tighter control of power came in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it going story for the past 6,000 years. So when I saw this, that actually the way the money was designed, something so <laughs> simple was the 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 real you know um string or the the real tale mm-hmm. behind all history in a way I was encouraged because I thought my goodness if money's been correct uh, correctly created in the past we could do it again right. and so I wrote the book to create a revelation for people to say you know what it's not you. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing actually wrong with your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's a way out of this and to reunite humanity, to reunite it even on the political spectrum, which seems impossible, right. um, but actually much easier when people start to calm down a little bit than it seems. And <laughs> we ourselves in communities can start to build some pathways of exchange with alternative systems that will support um, our families, communities, counties, states, and country, and even world by by doing these things. And we did not even need to change the political system. So it, it was incredible, incredible to me when I saw how the problem was one thing, that it created this incredible confusion and heartbreak for humanity and that we could do something and we could do something that seemed simple but had profound ramifications. Oh, I was on a mission. And um, so this is really what led me to um, to writing this book and getting out here hopefully to, to share with people how, mm-hmm. um, how, how much possibility – and in fact, I, what I really do believe is that we are the first generation 
uh, from all the generations that have come before us for the past five or 6,000 years who have the opportunity to change this like no people before us. I agree with that. No question about it, because that's where technology comes in in some ways, because the information is out there and the younger generations tap into it much more fluidly than, say, older generations. But having said that, we are definitely in the global community. Some of us are in denial. We are. We're connected. (laughs) The things that we do, that's the fascinating part. But it's also interesting, though, where in your book you talk about low history and so forth about money and everything else, because that's something that we, on the other hand, again, take it for granted. No one really understands the concept of why was the dollars backed by gold and then not, and then some countries do, some countries don't. And then, of course, now there's a madness of cryptocurrency and so forth. But before we get into the cryptocurrency and everything else, it was interesting. The other day I saw people paddling the fact that it's time to buy gold coins, (laughs) right? Because Mm -hmm. it's much more secure. So perhaps can you tell us a little bit about that concept? Because the average Joe out there doesn't know. I'm going to work right, and right. to get my paycheck to support my family. And so sometimes there's a disconnect there with you, the things you offer, and then what's in reality. So how do we bridge that? It's so true. I mean, the, this is really why I wrote The End of Scarcity also. And my mm-hmm. mom was my first reader, and she was like, <laughs> it's fantastic. You know, and, and the thing is, because it's so true, this is the missing history. Um, yeah. This is the knowledge that our great-grandparents had, no matter where they were in the world, probably, you know, two generations ago everywhere, certainly in America, two generations and, and large parts of Europe, People knew this. This was common knowledge. They were walking on the street. And we have to get our history back. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the average person, the average Joe absolutely does not know this anymore. But the average Joe, grandma and grandpa did know this, you Mm -hmm. know. And, And so when a people's history is taken from them, they are really in trouble because um, they can easily be manipulated into a, something else that, that where there's no future for the children coming forward. Um, so, yes. So this is one of the reasons why in the most consolidated and hopefully entertaining way, <laughs> I have been told that people can't put the book down. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I wrote it to, to entertain but also educate. So right. um, what I would have you know, given when I ran into this problem in 2008 or 2009, what I would have paid to have the end of scarcity then, you know, but it, I spent 10 years making it, right? Um, yeah. So the, the big thing is that um, the, the, the whole source of the problems that we have today is where we don't actually have money. And um, it, it's accelerated since the 80, 80s. Um, you know, in the 70s, there still was a sense of a dollar. You know, everyone just thinks the Federal Reserve prints our money, and they, it's not true. The Federal Reserve prints reserves, which, which stay within the banking system and help the banks remain solvency, you know, for a, enough mm-hmm, liquidity. Mm-hmm. But the big thing is we're, what we're using as money, because we all think it exists. We see it in our accounts. We get it in our paychecks. Um, but those digits on the screen are really someone's mortgage debt. And often people will say that I'm, I'm saying, oh, that, you know, we have so much debt, that's where the money comes from. No, I'm saying the money is the debt. And so 
the the thing is there's no fractional reserve lending anymore so the banks actually don't keep money in deposits they don't keep our deposits somewhere to pay us back or the 10 percent the system really doesn't work that way anymore and that can be more unnerving especially as we hear of all these banking crises Mm -hmm. but chances are if people have $250,000 in their banks so that they're within the FDIC insurance, chances are they're going to be safe. Um, it would be a political thing that the government more than likely would come and make that safe. But, you know, one doesn't know. My whole thing is this has not been the system that we've been on, and we could make huge changes. Um, the way money is created is someone goes to a commercial bank or a local bank and asks for a mortgage. The bank um, simply types it into existence. There are no 10% reserves. And um, they create 100000 as the new money that you get to use. And then mm-hmm. double book entry, they create the minus 100000 Now, when that money gets spent, the new money that was created, it looks like money when it travels around, but it's really a debt payment that that borrower owes. And like a yo-yo, it has a certain period of time in which it must be paid back. And here's the kicker, that when that debt is repaid, which we all know, okay, I Mm -hmm. repay my debt, now it's gone, it's been wiped out, or, you know, like the old Mm -hmm. slate chalkboards, but the money is also wiped out. See, because like a quarter to a flip side of the quarter, the heads and the tail, the, the money that we see circulating came into existence by someone borrowing money. So it does not exist separate. Mm-hmm. So every debt that's repaid means there's less and less money circulating in society. And so if the government were to pay off all of its debt, that's why the debt ceiling, even though it gets a big to do is not a big mm-hmm. deal um, because the federal government who that creates its own sovereign currency can actually type its own money. The state of New York can't. The state of Massachusetts or Texas or Oklahoma can't. But a sovereign government that creates its own money can. And um, the, the thing is, if the federal government were to pay off its debt, we would have a depression of inconceivable <laughs> measure because all the money would be extinguished. And mm-hmm. so my question is, why are we using money as why are we using mortgage debt or debt as our money? Because it creates all these imperatives. As soon as somebody pays back a debt, someone else must immediately take out a new debt and mm-hmm. maybe more if we want people to possibly have a higher standard of living. And that's why they say to you, what can you do for your country? You can go out and consume because we're on this horrendous hamster wheel where we have designed a token of exchange as a mortgage debt, which means the price of housing has to go up, the price Mm -hmm. of school has to go up. And you see these young kids, especially graduating from college, they sort of have been manipulated and propagandized to because they met most of them went into debt to get these college degrees. Nobody Mm -hmm. sat them down and said, what's going to be the corresponding value of a salary? Or here's the type of work that you want to do. How long is it going to take to pay off this debt? Is it worth it? Um, But because we need to have debt as a money system, the whole system pushes everybody this way. And then in the 70s, a home was only three times salary. And today it's 10. And there used to be higher um, down payments. But it's all coming from miscreating the dollar. 
So now you have these kids coming out of school with a lot of debt, and um, they might not be able to earn a relatively good rate of income, and they were probably in some she-she fancy dorms that, like, <laughs> even you take the city of Boston, if these kids go to college in Boston to, to have those same, um, you know, apartments like their dorms, it would be $5,000 a month, you know? <laughs> so they've almost been conditioned for communism already. This is the, this is the problem. And then they look at their parents and they say, how could I ever have a home, you know, when it's priced like that and I have this debt? And so how have we gotten into this pickle where we mm-hmm. have so many beautiful things and advancements, and yet in essence there's a lower standard of living coming for the future generations, and they're being pandered to to accept a universal basic income without them knowing that that will be total control over their lives. And um, a universal basic income, of course, does not really allow for more um, bills to be paid. It actually just creates more inflation, and it creates more separation between the haves and have-nots because the people with any money in the bank buy up what real estate is left, and it produces these final rentier economies. Now, for as much as this is a sad story, um, the, the, the wonderful bright light is that we found the root of it, which is mm-hmm. that the dollar has been created differently so many times, eight times in the history of the U.S., and forever um, currencies have been recreated throughout the whole history of humanity. And um, we have the opportunity to create alternative currencies peacefully, legally, beautifully that can help create a change that our ancestors are sitting on the edge of their seats praying that we actually do what they tried to do. And that's why I think we were born for this. And I think all this confluence of events, whether with the pandemic and the isolation, it's, it's just like the little chick breaking out of the egg. We have the beautiful opportunity to do now what we're called to do, which no people before us have been able to. I agree with that because I've always on the premise of when I say all this because it's based on my nine moms teaching me and I've really realized that and I share this with people. We live in a closed system. You can't create order without creating disorder somewhere else. The timing is right to whereby intent was good when everything was set up in the past. But for lack of a better term, it's old news or it's old fashioned now. (laughs) I guess that would be the best way to say it. Because it's amazing. I mean, we all go through the ups and downs in life, finances and everything else. To give you an example, I know that right now people would say to have some debts is good because it helps credit ratings. And that's mm-hmm. interesting because someone who pay everything with cash and probably has, say, I'm just being facetious <laughs> here, but say, you know, 100000 buried in the backyard, uh, that guy is not credit worthy. Yeah, there's actually a term credit cards will call them a ghost, you know. And so, in a way, again, we are we're we're conditioning the opposite of love. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the big difference is that money is being created as debt. It should be created as credit. And I don't mean credit mm-hmm. cards. There right. is a distinction, and it actually comes back to that spirituality. What's amazing is that when all societies thrived, they knew that what back the money is is what we contributed. And so even the founders of this country came here because they were in debt. There were not enough gold coins circulating around. 
And the problem is when you back money by gold, it's not that it's bad. We certainly could have gold money here, but it has to be one form of money. Then, then it's great. But when it's the sole form of money, people can make the gold coins scarce. And as my father used to say, who, he who has the gold makes the golden rules. So this is the same problem with a universal basic income, or if we were to have a central bank digital currency that became money that got expired or someone could turn it off, or if the dollar went to be gold-backed again, um, it's, it becomes totalitarianism very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. if we have the multitude of those choices where we have a dollar backed by gold and a dollar backed by silver and we have a CBDC and, you know, that if, as long as we have choice, oh, then you have freedom. And when you have freedom, you have the opportunity to live with your divinely given gifts. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to reach your potential and to say, wow, this is how I want to next contribute. We're also sort of campaigned to that a life of luxury is what we're seeking, and that's not what we're seeking. You know, we right. want to enjoy, right, the fruits of our labor, but what, what are we really seeking? We're really seeking community and mm-hmm. relationship and sharing attention and exploring how, uh, who we are and how, and that, and, and the basis of that is contribution. You know, mm-hmm. a conversation takes two, and, and in that, something greater is created. So our money systems were meant to represent that. Now, the founders of this country were told that they created um, uh, inflationary colonial paper money, the money by productive land banks, and mm-hmm. they issued only so much colonial or paper script as there was productive land. And if there was more productive land, if the people were ready to be more productive, they issued more. More was issued. If if there was too much circulating, then relative to how productive the people were, a short-term tax was issued to mop that up. So we have the opportunity now, and it's begun. I just got back from Austin where I went to Consensus 2023, the World Series mm-hmm. of Blockchain, right? Mm-hmm. And it was quite inspiring. I have to say it's one of the most inspiring, uh, you know, blockchain slash cryptocurrency conference I've been to. People were very grounded. They were very sober, um, a lot developing. And um, the real money revolution, which has been happened over time in history, is is getting ready to come where people can um, – money should be asset-backed, but it should be backed by by the products and services that we create. Mm-hmm. And there's a company in California who's starting to do this, backing, you know, issuing a certain amount of money backed by basically gift certificates or a promise to deliver a certain amount mm-hmm. of, you know, um, they provide cybersecurity services. Mm-hmm. There are farmers in Argentina who are issuing their money backed by a certain amount of soybeans. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I'm actually going to speak in Denver this weekend in the Denver area and talk about how farmers can self-issue their credit backed by a promise of a certain amount of food that they would deliver, mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. like the CSAs or farm shares that we buy in the winter time, and then we get 12 or 15 weeks of food. Money was always self-issued credit. Um, certainly during all the depressions, every right. single state, you know, in Massachusetts, the fisheries self-issued script backed by a certain amount of fish. 
to deliver. Leather factories to, to, um, issued a certain amount of script money backed by a certain amount of leather boots to deliver. And mm-hmm. so it, it's, it, people say, oh, wow, are you going back to barter? And I say, no, we barter today. When we <laughs> trade our services, they're just monetized, right? If you buy a cup right. of coffee – it's just been monetized for you. The only problem is that the dollar we're using does not store value because mm-hmm. it's mortgage debt and it creates ever inflated prices and people running on the hamster wheel to create new debt, to create new dollars because the dollar should not be created this way. Now, I'm not arguing with the national currency. I'm not trying to change that. It's right. just that on the alternative side, we get to make huge changes that might influence everything else. Um, it gives people a greater voice to um, say, gosh, what kind of a life do we want to live? And when local producers are actually issuing alternative currencies backed by the promise to what they deliver, it becomes legitimate because we know the value. It circulates in the real amount of supply and demand. And now mm-hmm. communities get strong, families get strong because they can earn money and money can actually be held in savings and maintain its purchasing power. Um, So I know this is happening, but just to your point about global part, so as local, you know, kind of concentric circles out, as local people start to do these alternative systems, um, it strengthens all the other circles. Because Ben and Jerry could issue, um, hypothetically, money backed by Ben and Jerry ice cream. And with mm-hmm. the blockchain, we can prove that that ice cream exists. We can prove mm-hmm. the supply and demand. And so people in Africa could say, you know what, instead of the Zimbabwe dollar or, you know, I, I'm going to store some money in Ben and Jerry's credits. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have the opportunity because of blockchain for this all to go Global, um, we are. We've already. St- I've already started to see corporate money coming this way. So mm-hmm. I think the really amazing news, as it looks like our world is possibly dissolving, or the only way to solve our problems would be sort of through these dependency-oriented universal basic incomes or big control mechanisms. I say, fear not. take great heart because (laughs) these are the challenges that actually get us to peck out of the little shell and find the world that's waiting for us. And in fact, we, I do think we will see hype. hype, I know nothing, but we will see Amazon and Apple and Toyota and Uber and all these companies beginning to issue their own credit backed, you know, promise to deliver money. Right. Right. And and so we'll transform the world and actually and people and a lot of people get overwhelmed and say, oh, I wouldn't want to calculate the difference between the money. Well, the wallets are all the technology is going to do it all for us. We'll still go to the store and just pay with money, but Mm -hmm. we will have a say in whose money we accept. Mm -hmm. But it will not Mm -hmm. be complicated where we're doing math in the front of the store. That's true. Well, I think the challenge from a layman's point of view would be. We hear all the nightmares, right? We don't hear about all the good stuff. And of course, most recently, when I say recently, within the last, probably earlier this year, the collapse of the cryptocurrency, the Bitcoins and so forth. So again, coming back to the average Joe and Josephine, that's fear. Right. And so right. how do and, we overcome yeah. that? It's so true. you know. And there's fear in everything and fear is paralyzing. I think it even triggers all the DNA of of, mm-hmm. of all the people who have been in wars, you know, or who mm-hmm. have run from tigers. Um, 
And the first thing I would say is things are never as bad as they seem. I even tell myself this, certainly as I'm working with the markets, and they are. not <laughs> um, You know, we just need a break. And the other thing is we need to stay connected to one another. The more connected we are, we activate our wealth and we activate mm-hmm. our power. People are wired for altruism for as much as it seems the opposite. I have, I have some really cute scientific stories that I weave into the book to show people the end of scarcity how in fact we're wired for altruism that that dawn of the new abundant world um, is really wanting to come and on top of it you know the systems even in the crypto world are safer than they seem Um, it's when we get the headlines the headlines are always inflammatory Mm -hmm. I'm not making a recommendation about anything but Mm -hmm. it's just that when we read the headlines the headlines are scary and when we actually take time to look oh it's quite a different story when we get in there so Bitcoin has never really you know it's it's um, it, you know, these are, and it's, it's the wonderful thing I'll say about cryptocurrency is that it opens the mind that people can really create money and um, systems of exchange on a peer-to-peer level. And mm-hmm. in fact, that's how it was always done. Um, I think that the next money revolution coming after crypto will be this production, which is going back to how it mm-hmm. was done from the beginning. Um, and I really do think it was the wisdom that the founders had. Um, and, you know, and then we can take the grace of the technology systems. Blockchain is really amazing. People often conflate um, uh, cryptocurrency with, with um, blockchain or Bitcoin with blockchain. And I like to say what Amazon is to the Internet, Bitcoin is to blockchain. So blockchain is just simply an accounting book that lets us track exchanging values with one another. So we have this tremendous technology to do administration to prove that we're putting in, taking out, that no people before us have. And so there are so many beautiful things being birthed. And, you know, we are an optimistic, quite resilient, um, you know, a, a wildly capable species. <laughs> and um, so I, my main message to everyone is when you're afraid, just, you know, we, let us acknowledge it and take a breath because we're all afraid. And then yeah. know that there's something even more beautiful waiting to be found. Um, right. And that's really why I wrote The End of Scarcity, to encourage people, to help them to come together. I have even on my website, which is just the, the book's name, theendofscarcity.com or my name, kristenragason.com. But, um, you know, there's a, a group on Facebook that people can join so they can come together and talk about these ideas. Wonderful, wonderful. I know you mentioned your website and so forth, but where can someone go to buy your book? get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, I'm really looking to build a community. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I had to even just for my job, I had to not have a big social uh, media presence, unfortunately. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, you know, I've had to walk two worlds. Um, so now I'm able to finally really build the communities. Um, so my uh, Kristen Ragason, which is K-R-I-S-T-E-N-R-A-G-U-S, like Sam, I-N, dot com. 
myname.com or the name of the book, theendofscarcity.com. You'll come there. You can join for a newsletter. I'll have lots of resources coming. Lots. I, I hope to do a weekly piece um, on the website about all the changes coming in, in the banking systems and financial systems and what communities are doing. Um, the book, you can buy the book on the website, but the book is everywhere, Audible, iTunes, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple, um, and can be ordered from any local bookstore. So it's, 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 I'm so thrilled there's such a hunger for it. And mm-hmm. it, you know, it reassures me that the time is now, um, that we're, we're, we're gonna come together and create a beautiful world. Um, much like the caterpillar becoming the butterfly, that, that the caterpillar could not imagine that this mm-hmm. is what the imprint we're going to really be able to leave for us and all the generations coming. Beautiful. What is next for you? Oh, gosh, probably a nap. Yeah, no, it's, you know, I'm sort of working around the clock, but it's it's a passion and a mission. Um, this yeah. weekend, I'm heading to um, Highlands Ranch area in um, Colorado and giving a talk, uh, I think, at the local library to mm-hmm. a whole, uh, if anyone's in, in the area, I think it's from 1 to 3 on Saturday. Um, and then I'll, I'll be busy the whole month of May. Um, you know, also on my website, there, there's lots of media, um, but um, well, hopefully what will come next, um, later next year, a children's book, a, a cartoon version. I'd like to do courses for um, for schools as well as for adults um, so that this can be brought into the communities and make it really accessible uh, to get this knowledge back into the consciousness. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, that's, you know, there's so much on the drawing board. So every day I'm working a little bit more toward it. Um, I hope to soon have a survey out where people can really take a self-assessment to see how much they are unconsciously living for the money mm-hmm. and how we can start to more live um, in our own empowerment and authority and based on our contributions. Um, because when we get in alignment with those contributions, we are anchored with the flow of abundance that's coming through us as well. So true. That's fascinating. As we close this hour, since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Oh, gosh. You know, the first thing I would say is um, really every morning when you wake up, take a pause. Um, and and, and it's, I find this challenging once in a while, too, but I really do this. Take a pause and whether feel the sun or the, the weather coming in and just recognize that another day and another day of your life is the sacredness of that is here and that it's meant to be something beautiful for you and for those around you. Um, I think we're so it's so quick to pick up the phone and get to the emails or the texts or all the things that have to be done. And even to just, if it's one minute or five minutes or a luxurious 15 minutes, to really pause and give thanks for a new day and really what a, a, what a miracle this whole wild thing that we're in, enjoying and adventuring in together is. Beautiful. That's really beautiful. Kristen, thank you for the beautiful recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next week 
Wednesday morning, May 10 at 10 a.m. Central Time, U.S. My guest will be Dr. Chelsea Johnson. Dr. Chelsea Johnson is a veteran psychotherapist and mindfulness practitioner whose work focuses on the intersection of trauma, somatic integration, spirituality, and social justice. She is the founder of Jade Integrative Counseling and Wellness, an integrative therapy practice where personal values, the search of meaning, and the power of choice are the central focus. Dr. Chelsea and I will be having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and her new book, Expired Mindset, Releasing Patterns That No Longer Serves You Well. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to from my mama's kitchen talk radio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Christian, it has been a true pleasure. I've learned so much. I know our audience learned so much and everyone go out there and get her book. Thank you again and have a very delightful and blessed week. Oh, thank you so much, Johnny. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, you too. Bye-bye.